The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I hope I didn't build up too much anticipation here. What I'm showing is actually just, um, I want to show this image. Um, so the point I want to turn to is, is including the heart in what we do. So science is not just dry observation, right? There's, there's love and there's even passion in what scientists do. This is not talked about in the formal literature, but within the informal culture of science, everybody knows. Everybody knows that there's that love and that emotion and that heart connection there, and it's important. I would assert that we have to include it to do really good science, actually. So this, does anybody know who this is? Yeah, this is Barbara McClintock. And she, um, she was a remarkable scientist of the 20th century. She was a corn geneticist um, who did most of her work in the middle of the 20th century. She won the Nobel Prize in 1983 for her discovery of um, genetic transposition. So this was a, um, that whole middle part of the 20th century, a lot was learned about genetics. She was a very intuitive scientist. Um, and this is a quote from a biography of her, of her. McClintock had an extraordinary ability to concentrate and an intuitive approach to science, which she called getting a feel for the organism that she believed led to her discoveries. McClintock believed that science does not merely proceed according to an explicit rational argumentation, but includes an intuitive subconscious element, an element that she tapped into. She said one had to be patient to hear what the material has to say to you. One must come to know an organism like one knows one's own home or body, intuitively, non-propositionally, intimately. And then she said, she was a corn geneticist, right? She said, you must lean into the ear of corn. I know my corn plants intimately, and I find it a great pleasure to know them. Isn't that sweet? Is that she was very unapologetic about uh, including her heart and her love in her science. Now, she won the Nobel Prize. She was, not, she was no slouch about uh, doing the research and having the deep understanding of what she was doing. So I would say that good science, like love and like mindfulness, is about letting things be as they are. And so, um, yeah, so really including that dimension. I guess maybe another, I'll include a second example, which is um, the example of my father. He, he was a physics professor, and for about the last 10 years of his teaching, he taught a class called um, The Physics of Music, which he loved, because he was a, also kind of a music buff. He particularly likes opera, and so he used to play all these operas for the college students who never thought they could appreciate opera at all. And you know he did all he did all kinds of demonstrations with his classes, including the one where you have a wine glass and you play the resonant frequency, and the glass oscillates you know larger and larger until it breaks. Very dramatic demonstration. And one time I watched a video of him um, doing some of these demos for an audience. He was uh, showing showing his um, some of the physics of music. And I was amazed to watch him sort of dash around with excitement, clearly delighted to be showing how, you know, how overtones are different for a string clamped at both ends compared to an open pipe. And he would demonstrate this and put the proportions up on the board. And it was, there was just something very um, open and, uh, yeah, delighted, dynamic about that. So including the heartfulness is critical in our... In, in the work of scientists and engineers, and yet emotions are unreliable, ultimately. In, we know that intuitively and also, you know, according to the teachings that we're looking at right now. So we bring our whole heart, but we're working dispassionately, you know? I think they're both there. 
They're both there. A lot of people have questions about this in practice. You know, partway along, they'll come to the teacher and they're worried because they, they've been told that meditation is about the development of equanimity and they're afraid that it's going to rob them of all the richness and, and excitement of their life. Um, all the color will be gone if I keep meditating. I guess as proof of, the, of maybe that that's not quite the correct view, I would ask, what do you know about people who are really long-term advanced practitioners and who are, you know, well-known teachers? You've, are they boring and dynamic and just totally flat emotionally? The Dalai Lama, for example? <laughs> no. So it, it's a little bit of, you have to find out for yourself, don't trust others, but a little observation shows that that doesn't seem to be what, what happens to people. So that's interesting, right? So, so the Buddha was actually well aware of all this. Um, he doesn't teach us a path that requires us to cut off our humanity, but we are asked to be skillful and to choose wise forms of energetic pursuit, you know, where to put our, our energies, and to pursue wise forms of joy and happiness. You know, there's, there, not every form of joy or happiness is helpful and conducive for our path. So the emotions in Buddhism get channeled largely into our intentions. Intentions like goodwill and compassion. Those are two of the three wise intentions. Remember the Kalama Sutta that we talked about first, a little farther down, you know, we were talking to the people who were skeptical. A little farther down, the Buddha describes what happens to a person who takes his advice and, and you know, sees clearly for themselves what is skillful and what is unskillful. And says, one who is a disciple of the noble ones, thus devoid of greed, devoid of ill will, undiluted, alert, and resolute, keeps pervading the first direction, which, as well as the second direction, the third and the fourth, by which he means the cardinal directions, with an awareness imbued with goodwill. Thus he keeps pervading above, below, and all around, everywhere and in every respect, the all-encompassing cosmos with an awareness imbued with goodwill, abundant, expansive, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. And then he says the same thing for compassion, for sympathetic joy, and for equanimity, all the four Brahma-viharas, as they're called. So he, he links it very clearly in the teaching that if you go ahead and see for yourself what works and what doesn't work, the result of that is that you end up um, with an open heart. You, know, you end up with a heart connection to the universe. And there are other suttas that say that also. It's, I'm not picking out just one case that's never repeated. So basically it's critical and it's, it's natural, I should say, that for someone who sees clearly, they will feel goodwill and compassion. They go together. That's the implication. So the Buddha is also clear about what he teaches and why. He says, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. So he's clear about that. The Buddha's teachings are for the purpose of ending suffering. We're not doing this for interesting intellectual knowledge or to have satisfaction of some kind of a complete worldview. Actually, he's interested in, in our not suffering, <laughs> in not struggling with our life, in not being in conflict with our experience. That's the aim. And so there are ways in which this differs somewhat from the stated aim of science in society. But this is what the Buddha was aiming at. And so I guess the next question I'll pose to you is, why do you practice? When I was in graduate school, there was a two-year period where I did measurements on equipment that had a uh, liquid nitrogen trap to cool a pump. I hear some nods of recognition already. And this trap would run out of liquid nitrogen after 12 hours, and that would be a disaster. If it runs out and the pump doesn't get cooled, the pump will fry. So, for two years, I filled that trap, at least every 12 hours, unless I shut down the system completely, which then took a while to get it back up. 
You don't do something like that <laughs> unless you have some fairly deep motivation, I would say. And similarly, I don't think a person sits on a cushion for 30 minutes or 45 minutes every day watching their breath or whatever is the practice or attends day-longs like this or even residential retreats. I know some of you have been on retreat without some deep sense of it in their heart. You won't do this practice without something, something motivating you. So what is that for you? Why do you do this with the amount of dedication that one goes to the lab? And are you tapped into that? Are you tapped into whatever that is for you? Who's this? Matthew Ricard, that's right. So, um, Matthew Ricard, it's okay if you don't know these people. I'm just doing this to put a human face on all we're doing. I actually have, there's only a few slides this morning and there's more this afternoon. But um, I think it's nice to include the people. So Matthew Ricard has a PhD in molecular genetics from the Pasteur Institute in France. And then after he did that, he became a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And he, um, he wrote a book actually called Why Do We Practice? And the subtitle is Working with Thoughts and Emotions. Um, this is a quote from that book. We don't find anything strange about spending years learning to walk, read and write, or acquire professional skills. We spend hours doing physical exercises to get our bodies into shape. To sustain such tasks requires a minimum of interest or enthusiasm. This interest comes from believing that these efforts are going to benefit us in the long run. Working with the mind follows the same logic. Training the mind is crucial if we want to refine and sharpen our attention, develop emotional balance, inner peace and wisdom and cultivate dedication to the welfare of others. We have, we have within ourselves the potential to develop these qualities, but they will not develop by themselves or just because we want them to. They require training, and all training requires perseverance and enthusiasm. So he goes on to give the example, you don't really expect to sit down and play like Beethoven if you're just learning the piano. You have to start with the scales and then practice and so forth. And so in the same way, um, we do this in training our minds. We take it on as something that we're going to learn and practice, and it might take a while to get really expert at us, and we're going to have to use our intelligence uh, to um, figure out, like we had a comment earlier about somebody had very clearly noticed that the energy was a little bit low, and so that was something that was going to need to be tweaked up in order to keep the system more in balance. So we're going to have to have observation like that to keep ourselves on track. Yeah, so I think I'll just leave that image up for us and we'll, um, we'll do another meditation. So once again, find a, let's find a posture. It feels comfortable and relaxed. You can notice internally if you sort of tighten yourself up. Um, or um, if you're able to, again, just be with the body as it is. And you can close your eyes when you're ready. And tune in again to that experience of breathing. And treat it as something new, a fresh encounter with the breath. It's not the same breath as you had an hour ago. Things have changed since then. And so what is it like now? Like that fish, we can keep observing it. So just orienting again toward feeling that flow of sensations, the simple direct sensations that are the way that we know that we're breathing. It's kind of a 
cascade of sensations through the nose, through the throat, maybe into the belly, different on the way in and the way out. Remembering the additional instruction to bring some tranquility and ease to the body through the breathing process. So maybe on the out-breath, allowing the shoulders to soften, the belly to soften. Muscles of the face. Softening the eyes in the eye sockets and that thinking muscle inside the brain. So that we're just present in a simple way. Allowing the body to breathe and watching it do that. If you notice feelings of ease or relaxation in the body, it's fine to include those deliberately in your awareness, to highlight them. And if that's making the mind sleepy, we can also tap into the energetic quality of the in-breath. The breath comes in and the spine straightens slightly As the diaphragm goes down, that's natural. So we can tap into that natural source of energy if we need to balance the system a bit. Getting a feel for the way a system that has just the right amount of energy feels easeful.
getting a feel for the breath. If there are parts of the body that still feel some tension, and we breathe with them, but there's still a tightness in the shoulders or the low back or the belly, that's fine. We, have, we can have mental ease around how the body is. It's fine as it is, it's just sitting and breathing. And as we begin to include the mind, we may notice some sense of mental ease through the simple task of being with the breath. It's there may be only a little sliver of it or there may be a fair amount of it, however, however much mental ease is present, just opening to that as part of the calming of breath meditation. there's some sense that this is fine. The breath is just unfolding. We're able to be with it. There's no test. It's fine that you're just sitting here, your experience. Keeping the mind with the full cascade of the bodily experience of breathing. So again, from that very moment of the touch of the in-breath, through the end of the in-breath and that beginning of the turnaround where the tension starts to go in the other direction toward the relaxation of the out-breath. And it gets very subtle toward the end of the out-breath, 
And if we include the mind, we may find that there are emotions associated with the breath. The in-breath brings energy, and often there's some mental reflection of that interest or joy or a sense of burden. I didn't want more energy in my system. During that long out-breath or a short one, there can be the emotion of its ending Is there going to be another one? A moment of fear. Including in our knowing the natural flow of the mind along with the body. And just as we inclined the body toward ease, relaxation, when we tap into that cascade of emotions and mental events, we can incline it toward ease. becoming intimate with our breath, feeling the body sensations from the inside, maybe even forgetting what we think we know about the body, and just meeting it as these sensations, curious, Maybe we can feel the breath energy moving through the whole body. Maybe we feel as if the breath is entering through the chest or the belly, not just through the nose or mouth, or even the back of the neck.
And as we continue to sit with the breath and the mind that is observing that, we can deliberately include the heart, the sensations in the chest. It's fine to use the physical heart. Maybe noticing the way the breath flows through the heart area. Any sensations present in the chest area. However it is, is fine. I'll now invite a type of practice called reflective practice. It's very simple. It's a process of taking a mind that's somewhat calm and dropping in a question kind of like dropping a stone into a well. And it's not so much that you are going to find out the answer, but it's kind of just to see what the ripples are like. Even to feel in the body those ripples. So the question is, why do I practice? And it's fine if there's a, there's probably some cognitive answer, some words. And every answer that we get to that question is fine. We can even be grateful to it. Thank you. And then we can gently drop in the question again. Why do I practice? And whatever that produced. Thank you. And if it's of interest, I invite just continuing to ask silently, why do I practice? not to catalog 25 different things, but to just see, because you'll get past the surface ones eventually.
may be that eventually you'll just settle into something nonverbal about why you practice. And that's a good place to rest, and it's a good place to be tapped into. And there's still the breath. So does anybody have any questions or comments at this point? curious about the uh, walking meditation, if anybody could figure out how you know that your leg is swinging. (laughs) Or also anything from that meditation about touching into the, including the heart in the way that we meditate. Yeah. Uh, I did explore that some because I thought this how do you know you're walking was interesting and it kind of made my brain go in a loop. And then it finally got to, well, what is walking? Yeah. <laughs> because I realized I just couldn't define it. Um, mm. And so it's, it's really very diffuse concept. Well, I'm walking because I'm, I say I'm walking or I tend to be walking, but what part of that thing I'm doing is walking? How fast do I go before I'm actually running? Uh, right. Uh, does it, is it because I'm going walking. someplace, or that I'm moving my legs? And yeah. So anyway, it was oh, interesting. You. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes the questions we ask has a big impact on how we end up experiencing something, right? Yeah. Here's one. So how do I know I'm moving my leg? It was I, I suffer chronic pain, uh-huh. so I pay a lot of attention to my body. Pain associated. With yes, that. Um, and and mindfulness really helps uh, much more than any painkiller. <laughs> In what way does it help? Um, so meditation and and yoga gives me six hours of relief without the stomach upset <laughs> in a way um, and so that there's some meditations for um, pain uh, through the inside meditation centers and that they're really very very useful for me 
So the, the, my relationship to my body has changed because of that. So everything is connected now for me. So mm. w w how do I know my leg is moving? It was very interesting because, oh, my hips are yeah, it's changing. through the hips and, and the knees and the, even the shoulders. Yes. Yeah. So I, I sometimes think that I became hyper-aware of my body, <laughs> in a sense. But it's, it's very good. I am grateful for that. I mean, you need to follow the path to get to certain points. So, um, yes. But it, it's very interesting. The question was very interesting. How do I know? So it, it, oh yeah, my hips balancing. Oh, I can feel it. And the arms swinging. It, it's, it's the whole thing. Uh, it, very, very interesting question. Oh, <laughs> Thank that you. was very beautifully said. Thank you. Um, in that... Yeah, I also had the experience of having pain and therefore becoming hyper-aware of the body. And it's really good <laughs> in that, yeah. And I, I picked up what you said about mindfulness being helpful because there's something about the awareness of it. Like when it's just the pain and there's not really awareness because we're trying not to have it, uh, it really changes the experience of the pain compared to being willing to actually turn and be mindful of it which is, of course, the instruction that goes with the first noble truth. Suffering is to be understood. There's a task that goes with each of the four noble truths. And so pain, bodily pain, is one of the forms of suffering of human life. And this is not to be denied, pushed away, forgotten about, overcome. It's to be understood. That's interesting. <laughs> and I think, in a way, you, you learn to live with it. Yeah. Uh, like, I know I cannot sit completely still during meditation. I, need, I know I need to fidget a little bit. I'm at peace with it now. I'm not, it, it's just, okay. Yeah. I'm not going to let it define me. It's, it's part of what I am. And so you found the relation, that the relationship between mind and body is really important. Yeah, that's very much what we discover through practice is the mind and the body are a system together. And uh, if one part is, if they're operating independently in some sense, they don't. But um, if we think that they do, that we're, we're, we're missing a vital connection that has important information in it. And actually, that information has a lot to do with our well-being. So it behooves us to connect these better. Yeah. Thank you for that. Jim. Oh. Well, I took the walking meditation time as a chance to go and get a hot chocolate at Starbucks. So I was walking pretty fast. Um, and I thought, well, I can still do this practice. And one of the things I was noticing was the feel of my pants on my right. legs. So it was actually, you know, the, the sensation in the, in the shins. And, and then, of course, later when I was standing in line... I could still feel sensations on the on my legs from my pants, but there they they weren't quite the same pattern. So I think part of it is well, I was thinking the term data fusion came to mind because I knew I was walking because visually I saw that things around me were changing. Right? I mean, okay. I was moving. But you know the difference if you were sitting still and they were playing a movie past you. That would be different than if you were walking, right? Well, I think so. Yeah, I, th I think so. Unless the virtual reality... Or if you or, were naked and didn't have your pants. Well, I thought about taking my pants off, but um, I didn't think Starbucks would serve me. <laughs> if I, you know, no pants, no shoes, no service. So, um, anyway, th that was Thank what I noticed. Yeah, those are the good observations. So it's interesting how you said um, your answer depends on how you're asking the question or what question you ask. Because I had a, a completely different experience of how do I know I'm walking. Um, it kind of ended up being what makes me walk. Oh, okay. And I really kind of realized that it's kind of this movement of the chest through space that then kind of create your body to automatically react uh, to not fall and bring the leg. 
um, and that was um, that was interesting. But um, the second part of the medication meditation, when you um, moved kind of from you know cognitive to uh, affective and the art the the heart. Um, it was interesting because the way you said, now pay attention to your heart, or I can't remember what word you use, but you said it's okay to use the physical heart to kind of get to the feeling or something like that. And that was incredibly useful for me oh. because it's almost like if I try to go to the feeling, I can't. Like I'm, I, I have problems of not feeling my emotions. Um, but the way you were saying about, so I just focused on the heart where it is in my body. And from that, I could really see that there was a lot of sadness. But I've been meditating. I meditated even this morning before I came here. I've been meditating all morning, and I didn't feel that. Mm. And it just kind of came back to, oh, yes, I remember my dreams, and it was all about sadness. And so... Uh, that was very interesting how you brought it. It's kind of like looking at the fish and then you think you've seen everything in 10 yeah. minutes and then after an hour all this stuff starts coming, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah very interesting. Thank you for, for sharing that. Yeah. These are great. I don't think there's just one. Yeah, there's one in the back there. I don't think there's just one way that we know we're moving our leg, by the way. It's not like there's a right answer to that. I think different people have different subtle ways of knowing. Yeah, go ahead. I was very surprised to notice that I could not tell that I was walking. Uh-huh. I could feel when my foot came up off the ground, okay. and then my leg would go forward, and then I could feel when my foot hit came the ground down. again. But yeah. you ask about how do, you, my, how do you know that your leg is swinging through the air? I didn't. Yeah. And I thought for sure that there'd be some proprioceptic sense or something that tells you where your, where your body parts are, and I would just feel my leg moving through the air, and I had no sensation of that. Um, so I just learned that I know I'm walking because my mind tells me I'm walking, because, and I guess that's the way things work in general, that you really don't get all that much sensory information coming in. Your brain just puts together a detailed picture from a few little bits of information that are coming in, and... That certainly was true for me in walking. Thank you. That's a, it, it's certainly true that our brain is putting together a lot of detailed information from, not, you know, from a s- smaller set. On the other hand, um, there's actually way more sensory stimulation available than we can take in with our mind. The, the converse is also kind of true. And we're selecting in some way what set we're going to pay attention to. We're going to get into this in the afternoon. I mean, if you think about all the possible things that there would be to pay attention to, including the, the touch of where you're sitting, every sound in the room, all the sights, you're filtering a lot <laughs> just to, and to be able to be present. And so um, what is that process? It's very interesting. And then when you direct to certain things, you discover maybe that they've been filtered out, that, that those feelings of the leg moving, or they're just very subtle. Uh, yeah. So this is all just observation that we're doing. That's what I'm pointing us toward. Okay, good. Well, um, so this morning we've been exploring some of what I would say are the confluences between science and Buddhist practice, um, ways in ways in which the scientific mind can easily connect with meditation practice, this idea of investigation, of observing, you know, having an observer of experience, of um, checking things out for ourselves, and of also of using the body. That's um, one way. We had one comment that it's sometimes hard to tap into the emotions. That's more likely for a highly cognitive mind. So the body can be a um, tool for understanding our emotions all of those are true. And then in the afternoon, I want to, um, with this as a basis, I want to shift into allowing some divergence, uh, some ways in which the habits of a highly cognitive or highly analytical mind can uh, influence our practice in various ways and can 
um, maybe start to be different than some of the things that the Buddha was saying. We're going to look at some more suttas also. And to consider if the aim is the end of suffering, um, to what degree we're directing, you know, our actions and speech and mind are directed in that way. So we're going to have lunch uh, for an hour. We'll be back at one. And if you want uh, practice instruction for lunchtime, you can talk during lunch, by the way. We'll get out the tables and um, it's not a silent lunch. 